From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello and welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. My guest today, a very well-known high-profile CEO, is also, as I found out, a really good musician. Listen to this. On lead guitar, Jesper Broden, the CEO of Inca Group. You may know it as the parent company of IKEA. The band members, IKEA staff from around the world. And the song, it's called Rain on Java. So I'm interested in music. So I think Rain on Java was an, a song idea that goes back to many years ago when I was living in uh, Indonesia. I spoke with Jesper about leadership and one particular lesson passed down from a mentor that guides him. I learned how to be a human because he was very uh, out of character, very into just being himself in every situation. His commitment to gender equality. The family values we had when I was growing up. My mother and father had a very equal uh, uh, relationship. And his IKEA journey that started off working in Pakistan. I could write uh, a book about the culture shock I experienced, to be honest. To where he is now in the top spot. Here's my conversation with Jesper Broden. Welcome to Out of Office. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I want to begin by talking to you about this beautiful song you created with your colleagues from around the world this summer, Rain on Java. How did this come about? So I'm interested in music. So I think Rain on Java was an, a song idea that goes back to many years ago when I was living in uh, Indonesia. Because it's like, I don't know if it comes through, but Rain on Java is referring to when it rains on Java, it really rains, right? It's an extreme uh, type of rain. So I think it's uh, alluding to the emotions during the uh, lockdowns where people were in isolation. And I think a lot of people um, like myself and colleagues out there were, of course, feeling extreme emotions of isolation, loneliness, worry and so on. So I think that was the uh, uh, start of it. Um, And I always looked for a reason uh, for this song to fit in. and we decided just to make it come alive and then to invite people to join us from all over the IKEA world uh, to play instruments and to, to, to do it. So it's basically done in a couple of days uh, together with some colleagues around IKEA. And then we used it uh, in June just as a, a bit of a smile and uh, yeah, to emphasize the importance of togetherness, I think, in these difficult times. It's amazing because you have colleagues from China, from the Netherlands. I mean, it really was a global effort and everybody coming together to sing one song. It's very special. Yeah, it was very fun. And uh, obviously, it's not the best world-class recording, maybe from the technicalities, but from an emotional perspective, I think it scores high. (laughs) So, as you said, you know, 2020 has been a difficult year for people around the world. Personally, what's it been like for you? 
Well, Malika, it's been, uh, I think, like you say, it's been a year like no other years we have ever experienced. And I think it continues to be, of course, incredibly surprising, challenging. Uh, at this moment, I think we all are in a moment of both uh, respect for the situation, the challenges, the longevity of it, that it's, it's truly a marathon to stay fresh and to have perspective is one of the important things. In the beginning, um, it was very difficult for me uh, as well as for anybody, but there were so many fears about, you know, uh, existentialistic fears about, of course, uh, my own family, uh, people around me, but also the company, what would happen to us and so on. At the same time, if I may say that with all the respect, it's been also refreshing to really, this is a stress test of our culture and values, our community of leaders. I think for myself, it's one of those periods in life when you really have to sort what, what is really important in life and what, what is uh, just shallow on the, on the surface. Uh, so I, I think it's uh, massive learnings for myself about my own leadership and purpose um, as well. So it, it's many strong things happening at the same time. What did you realize about what is truly important? Well, there's been a couple of moments. I think one of the interesting things for me was how actually the world was in um, a very strong denial together as late as in February. So we saw what happened to the, in China. And of course, uh, global companies in China responded there like we did. But we were all in agreement that it would remain in China and everybody was wrong. And throughout this journey, I think one of the interesting things is that we have been together so very wrong about so many things, <laughs> which tells me that we are trying to use historic data, knowledge uh, and experience to judge a totally new situation. So, for example, in IKEA, we, we tend to more listen to our neighbors and customers than to institutes and researchers at this moment. Because, again, uh, there are so many surprising new phenomena to, to this. Also to the positive, the levels of collaboration has, been, has never been so high. If I look at, from my own perspective, the, how we work with authorities, how we work with unions, how we connect with suppliers, supply chain, uh, I think that was not expected maybe in the beginning of it, but it has brought us closer to each other, I think. What do you think is the most important quality a business leader needs to, uh, to exhibit or to lead a company with at a time like this? I think there are a couple of things that springs to mind. I think, you know, at the heart of it, it is to be human, I think, you know. It's, it's sometimes when we step into those roles as government officials or corporate leaders behind the tie and the suit, and we step into our expected roles. Um, but I think this has been an opportunity, both since the crisis has been so severe, that there has been, on one hand, nobody to blame, if you see, but also, you know, there is no place to hide from the sincerity of the crisis. Uh, and on top of that, you know, people are connecting from home, uh, like you do today. I think that has added to the slightly more human and personal touch. Um, but more than so, I, can, I feel that, um, it's a bit of a trend word to say agility, but you know, in these moments that we have experienced, to be able to, from one day to another, to reassess what was maybe true yesterday is not uh, true today and tomorrow. So the agility and the openness and also admitting mistakes, um, uh, but the speed of change here has been um, very important and I have many examples to that. But finally, I think at this moment and the period we're in right now, I think, um, as a leader, there are two things you need to assume, and that is recognition. People are extra thirsty for recognition these days, and I think there's so much well-deserved recognition. 
But there is more loneliness and isolation and the longevity of the crisis means that people are, uh, I think, uh, lacking a, a bit of that. And the second thing, maybe most important of all, is optimism. That you as a leader have to be the beacon and the lighthouse of what's going to come uh, at the horizon. That uh, this will pass, which it will, and we're heading towards better times. It's going to be bumpy and challenging. Uh, but it will be good. And there, there will be a lot of good things that we will bring with us as learnings and opportunities. So I think optimism is probably the most important. At the moment, yes, for sure. And with the vaccines, hopefully around the corner, you know, hopefully we'll yeah. be turning a page. You talked about the importance of being human as a business leader. You know, you run such a large company with thousands of employees around the world. How do you stay in touch with them? How do they sort of experience the human touch when everybody's working from home you talked about isolation feeling lonely and yet you talk about how important it is to be human so how do you reach out to your employees and remind them that you're there for them uh, very good now i think it's interesting because it's not that easy with the isolation of course the period before the uh, pandemic i had the um, fortune to invest a lot of time to be out there meet uh, colleagues customers visit our stores uh, be together with people in different development areas. So in a way you can say, I think I had, and probably a lot of other leaders had some sort of invested social capital, if you like. But what you can sense, of course, is that this is not forever. So I think there is a longing for me now to, to be able to travel again and meet people. And at the same time, strangely enough, the new ways of working, connecting with people on different platforms like we do now, has actually increased my connecting with people and leaders. Um, so some people I would maybe have met once or twice per year, and now we meet each other every second week. We run uh, webinars with all our leaders. We, we have uh, support systems for all coworkers in IKEA. Uh, you know, it's very individual how heavy this is on us uh, as individuals. So people show up at different times and opportunities to just share uh, the emotions in the ride. And this we have never done before. I think we're gonna continue to do it forever. And I think tomorrow also we will continue to uh, mix leading in reality and visit each other physically, uh, but also to, to actually uh, increase the social bond by being more digitally together. One of the things IKEA is known for, apart from design and affordability, is a company that really believes in having a strong uh, moral compass and standing up for what's right and creating a very inclusive work culture. Why is this personally so important to you? Well, I, first of all, I think I was attracted to IKEA way back. Um, it was the, uh, I think it was a positive loaded brand for me when I was uh, younger. I didn't know uh, uh, as much, of course, as I know today about it. But there was something that was attractive about the company that was owned by a foundation and was uh, led by values, which was clear to me from, from the very beginning, so to say. Interesting enough, our founder, he left us what he called a testament um, of a furniture dealer. It wasn't necessarily money to us, but it was a lot of wisdom. Uh, and he left us a very strong vision uh, to be for the many people. And then he skipped all the strategies and plans and went straight to values. Togetherness, collaboration, uh, simplicity, and many other strong values that are dear to us. Um, so I think what I've learned also in this crisis is that the, the power of having strong values is incredibly strong and very fast. So, for example, I had uh, in the early days of March, I had journalists asking me, uh, perceiving that we were very fast on acting, not only on 
safety uh, for our own co-workers and for customers, but also how we responded in society. Uh, medical support, food, support for the vulnerable, etc. And they asked how we had managed to so quickly organize it. And the, the truth is we didn't. So the leaders out there responded and did the right thing because they, they have that freedom and that is, it's that kind of uh, culture. So I think, uh, of course, we have orchestrated some things, both um, you know, moving some things forcefully, uh, correcting some of our mistakes and so on. But it's also a powerful culture, I think, that can respond to a crisis without waiting for the highest general to come with an order, so to say. And I think that's very modern, to be honest, in, in the world with educated, motivated people. It is, it is. But I'm just wondering, you have talked about it uh, previously, how the company values, you know, align with your personal values. And obviously for you personally, it, it's very important that you do create a diverse and an inclusive workspace. So who do you think has guided your personal value system? Is it your parents or an education or a particular experience? Where does your personal sort of moral compass come from? Yeah, I, I probably need to talk to my mother and father about this. But, you know, I think it comes from the beginning, from uh, the family values we had when I was growing up. I think my, my father, for example, I think he was very modern. Uh, my father is, uh, is an artist and he, he was very strong on equality. Uh, so uh, my mother and father had a very equal uh, uh, relationship. And uh, it was important for him as well that she had an opportunity to pursue her career. My father had this amazing... I think uh, very modern view, which more people should use today. He he had one political preference, but he he was subscribing to newspaper that represented the whole uh, specter, and he used to tell me that it's important to understand uh, different perspectives. It's not a matter of right and wrong, but it's a matter of. Uh, and then he could have very strong opinions, but um, but I, I think I was brought up in a, a fairly value-based and democratic uh, environment. And then, to be honest, uh, I think ending up in IKEA, where this is important, was a revelation for me. And I think that has built me as a character over the years as well. And I see two things. I think see how effective it is, but I also see in a modern world, for people to work for something that is meaningful, uh, as we uh, hopefully all of us move up the uh, Maslow ladder, I think it becomes almost unthinkable to work for something that would not be guided by values at the core. What kind of artist was your father? Well, he, he is still uh, uh, very active as an artist. Uh, he's been uh, okay. into aqua. He's actually been a, a gallery owner. He's an art teacher, and I think he's tried all the disciplines. Uh, and nowadays, he's into flower and hearts. So uh, he's eighty plus, and he's into mm -hmm. a very romantic period. It seems. <laughs> Did any of that rub off on you? Are you an artist? Do you paint? Well, uh, uh, well, at least I had the opportunity to learn, uh, and I think I've always been interested in it. Uh, so uh, definitely, I think music and art is a bit of, um, you know, a channel for contemplation and uh, enjoyment for me as well, even if I don't have my father's talent. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, 
and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So as a young boy, you saw your mom and your dad having a very equal relationship. Yes. And that's obviously affected your views on gender equality, I assume, because for you as a young boy, that's all you knew, right? Exactly. I thought that's how it used to be all over. But uh, obviously that was uh, maybe, of course, Sweden is, um, I think, uh, a society that is also known for goods and bads. But also, I think on the good side, it is uh, a society that has come to a point where it's a natural part of I think for b- both men and women to, to accept them to be okay in their roles uh, with the uh, equality and the benefits of it, uh, I think. Um, uh, so for me, it was a natural thing, honestly. As I've been traveling the world, you know, I've been living in many countries, uh, living in uh, many countries in Asia, Pakistan, uh, China, Indonesia, etc. And I think that the thing that fascinates me, which I think is also even maybe more important in a world where we are led to believe in uh, messages that are of uh, polarization nature, so to say. I think what I always, you know, try to focus is, is not the differences, but the similarities. Of course, you can focus on some obvious differences in behaviors and uh, so on. But when you start to go a little bit deeper into humanity, we are very much the same and we share a lot of similarities. And I might have more things in common with a, a colleague from uh, Karachi than I have with a relative or a neighbor. Partly, I think it's also taught me to not buy the hype of differences, but rather look for the similarities. Uh, there's a lot of energy in that. You started your IKEA career in Pakistan, isn't yes. that right? I am the first one, I think, who has done that. Really? No, but it's a fun story. Of course, uh, coming from Sweden, uh, it was strange to me because my first work experience was parallel with my university studies uh, working in supply. And I think that partly gave me some qualifications to apply for a supply chain purchasing job in in, uh, Pakistan, where um, uh, it was um, early days of setting up uh, a trading office in in Karachi for textile. I didn't have any experience from IKEA, from textiles, from Pakistan. So it was a bit strange that after all, as a 26-year-old, I was the one chosen to lead that team. And when I asked my manager a year after when things were in a good place, and I dared to ask, why me? And he told me I was the only one who applied for the job. So, so, uh, so I think, I think uh, for me it was a huge step. And to be honest, without my then girlfriend and now wife, I probably wouldn't have dared to. She was the brave one. Uh, but it was an absolutely lovely adventure and experience in many ways. So in what way did that shape you? First of all, what, what are some of the memories you have of those very early days in Pakistan? And how do you think that experience shaped you into the person you are today? I could write a, a book about the culture shock experience, to be honest. You know, you're coming from Sweden when the driver comes to a red light and just passes. But when you come to a green light, you have to watch out. Uh, uh, there was like, uh, you shake your head when you mean yes. and Everything was upside down. And I think I was treading water in more than, uh, I was sleepless more than one night uh, to, to the whole experience. But the, the refreshing thing, I think, is that you turn that back to yourself. You be, you're, part of you have to accept to be small. And then you can only rely on your values, your common sense, uh, the relations of people around you. You become so dependent, right? And in that way, I think it's very healthy because you have to remain humble and your listening qualities needs to be uh, trained and sharpened. And of course, you need to ask yourself, how can I build qualities and, uh, and add value into this situation? 
and uh, for me it was um, it was uh, a period also in the uh, yeah in the history for for Pakistan in Karachi that wasn't easy. There was a lot of conflicts, a lot of threats. Uh, so it also brought people uh, very close together. So I remember it as a very human, very warm, a very close uh, period. And I was young. We had incredible business access. So some of the things we did there was just fantastic. And I still smile when I think about it. Yeah, you clearly have happy and fond memories of that experience. Oh, yes. <laughs> in your professional life, I know in your personal life, your parents uh, and their equal relationship had a big impact on you. In your professional life, have you had a mentor who's really influenced uh, the, way you, the way you lead a company? <laughs> well, I've had the pleasure to have many mentors. I think uh, uh, it's one of the gifts you can have, I think. Uh, and then I think, you know, whether you call it mentor or so on, it's just people that, you're, that you look up to, people that you, you can learn from. Over the years, I think I've, there are a couple of people that I've had the pleasure to be with and learn from and uh, who are different to me. And sometimes in, in tough situations, I can, I can think about what would that person do in, in such a situation. And that can give you, uh, that gives me uh, uh, strength and, uh, and uh, some guts to act uh, in, in the right way. I had obviously the luxury to work for a couple of years uh, with our past uh, founder, Ingvar Kamprad, who started IKEA, um, and uh, uh, I learned massively from him. But I think, you know, every business, uh, opportunities, uh, everything, but maybe also I learned how to be a human, because he was very uh, out of character, very into just being himself in every situation, emotionally, brilliantly. Uh, with all his uh, excellence and faults, if you like. Uh, and that, that uh, gave me, I think, uh, a real benchmark of what to be a leader, and to stop pretending to be somebody else. Uh, so that was important for me. Do you remember any particular anecdote or incident or story where he allowed his humanness to come through and you thought, you know what, that's remarkable that he's just being himself and allowing his true self to come through? How many hours do we have? No, but, you know, I think... Uh, <laughs> The, the interesting thing from the beginning, I think he, he showed that side. I, I remember the first, I met him once before I took this job, but the first working day was actually on a, on a Saturday. We were, were in the office. He was on a visit and we had uh, some sort of meeting. And on the way back, uh, he was, I was going to drive him to the train station and he was taking the train to the air, airplane back home uh, to Switzerland. And he insisted on buying uh, tulips. Um, and we really didn't have time. So in the end, I said, there is, a, there is a flower shop next to the station. And he said, no, it's too expensive. It was very uh, thrifty. So he knew about a shop that was half price somewhere out on the countryside. And we were, it was very stressful, but he bought a big bunch of flowers. And I managed to get him to the train just in time. And, when, um, and I thought it was for his flower, uh, sorry, for his wife. Um, and in the end, when he st stood on the train, he threw the flowers to me and said, please apologize. Uh, to your wife for working on a Sunday uh, or on a weekend. No. And I th that was typically him. So he, he would make quite complicated things to do things right, but also to show his appreciation. Uh, he was a mastermind of that. So. Oh, that's an amazing story. That really yes. is. Now, I know music is really important to you. You play the guitar every day and I watched you play the guitar uh, for that fabulous song that you all created. But I know you love sailing as well, right? This, this is right. 
So tell me a little bit about that. And then I know I've kept you long enough. I'll let you go after this. But just tell me about what it is about being out in the water. Is that your time to escape? Is that your time to problem solve? What does it feel like when you're out there on the waters? It's my way to get, get away from my teenagers. No, and I, I think uh, I'm brought up on the west coast of Sweden. I'm from Gothenburg. Um, so I think uh, and every summer, every spring, summer, autumn, I've been uh, connected to the ocean and to sailing uh, from as a young, young boy and, uh, and forever. And I had the pleasure to pursue a dream when I was younger also to, to join um, a company that was uh, sailing uh, luxury yachts uh, from Sweden to uh, West Indies and back uh, and be part of a little bit longer uh, sales as well. And I think for, for me, ever since I think the ocean, it's, it's about, um, it's something about the calmness. Um, it's something about uh, sailing. There is no way you can rush things or you have to accept that things takes time. Um, but then the ocean as such, I think there is something about the respect of the bigness of nature, the, the fast change of nature and the respect for that. Uh, so for me, it's just a massive opportunity to recharge and, uh, and uh, get energy. And it's, um, other people have uh, yoga, others walk in the forest. And for me, it's to get in a boat and get out there is, is what makes me most happy. Jesper Broden, thank you so much for joining us on Out of Office. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. That's Out of Office for this week, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jesper Broden, CEO of Inca Group, parent company of IKEA, as much as I did. Remember, you can find more episodes of Out of Office on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Bloomberg Terminal, and Bloomberg.com. I'll leave you now with a little bit more of the song Rain on Java with the message to stay optimistic and to stay well. This episode was produced by Jordan Gaspare. I'm Malika Kapoor. Thank you for listening. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.